coronavirus infections are surging. Hospitals are filling and ICUs are reaching capacity. In July, there were fears that num the number of infections could rise as high as 100,000 a day. And just yesterday, December 2nd, we saw a really alarming uh, record. In the United States, we surpassed 200,000 new infections in a single day and 100,000 patients hospitalized. Amid this worsening situation, there is, however, exciting news. There are now three promising new COVID-19 vaccines which claim more than 90% efficacy. To talk about these vaccines, their real world effectiveness and the state of the pandemic, I'm joined today by Dr. Amish Adalja, an expert on infectious diseases and a senior scholar at the Johns Hopkins University Center for Health Security. Welcome to New Idea Live. I'm Ilan Jurno. Amish, welcome. Thanks for joining us today. Thanks for having me. Welcome back to the to the podcast. I know you're really short on time. Yes. We are going to try to get through as much material as we can. Uh, people, are, if they're interested in interacting with us, they can do it through uh, YouTube Super Chat and sending us questions. We'll try to get some questions in as we go, but I want to sort of set up the context for this discussion of the uh, new vaccines by just sort of getting our bearings. Where are we with the pandemic? Because I, here are two things I've heard. I'm sure a lot of people watching have heard this too. We've heard people say pandemic's over. We don't even need vaccines. It's basically, it's a done deal. You know, there aren't, uh, people are hyping the infections. At the same time, we're hearing the CDC director, Robert Redfield, saying this winter might be the most difficult time in US public health history and the number of cases is being undercounted by a factor of eight or 10. So what are you seeing? What's your assessment? Where are we in the pandemic? I think we're in a very bad spot. What we have now is basically uncontrolled spread in all 50 states. And what's happening is chains of transmission are landing on vulnerable populations, including in nursing homes, which then end up requiring hospitalization and hospitals for, for many reasons are just unable to expand capacity, unable to expand staffing. And we still really do not have any way to get control of this because we don't have that test trace and isolate system that people have been talking about wanting since, since January, basically. So, so what I think is happening now is you're going to see a lot of hospitals, especially in the suburban and rural areas, really be crunched in terms of capacity, thinking about how they're going to curtail other services they offer. And there really is no end in sight for the next couple of months that this is only going to accelerate because pandemic fatigue is real and it's understandable that people are tired of, of stay at home orders or restrictions because the government has failed over and over again to develop a coherent strategy to be able to protect people from getting infected. And this is all coupled with the fact that we knew that this virus is going to accelerate as it got colder, as people moved indoors. So all of this was predictable and preventable, but nonetheless, we are in a horrible situation. And I, I just worked on this whole weekend and it's not a very fun thing. And it's definitely the highest pace of COVID patients I've taken care of since the beginning of this pandemic. And I'm very worried about, for example, my hometown hospital and how it will actually be able to survive this because they, they just don't have the capacity to, to deal with this. And there's so many vulnerable populations that are getting that are getting hit with this and they're requiring hospitalizations. And it's it's just uh, really uh, kind of horrific what, what we're having to deal with on a day-to-day -day basis and it's not sustainable. So let's transition to the topic of the vaccines themselves because this is the ray of hope for I think a lot of people. And the last time you and I talked, we said, this is the one thing we're waiting for. And what's happened is the estimates for when these might happen have become 
you know, we, we thought it might take a year or two and, and you know, record breaking speed. Now we have three vaccines that all are very promising based on the preliminary data. So I wanna just unpack what, what to make of this. Um, help us understand sort of the objectivity of how these are, what the trials look like, how the data is analyzed. So let me start with this. So, you know, we read news reports, Pfizer reports efficacy of whatever it is, 94%, 90%, or Moderna is saying this is their result. But are we actually just going by what the companies themselves are telling us? Who's looking at this data? Could you, like you as a, as a scientist, could you go look at the raw data and analyze it? How, how can we get confidence in the results of these things? So all of these trials are monitored by what are called data safety monitoring boards or DSMBs, which are independent groups of people, scientists, statisticians that are looking at the data as it comes in and making decisions about whether or not they're meeting certain thresholds, whether there's a safety signal, whether there's an efficacy signal. Eventually all that data, and that's what's being piled on, what's going on at the FDA right now is that the people on the advisor group are getting mountains of data. Uh, people had talked about the data for the rotavirus vaccine being higher than the Sears Tower in terms of how much paperwork was submitted to the FDA for the approval. So there's a lot of data that's out there. It's not publicly available yet, but eventually what ends up happening is these trial data get published in a peer reviewed medical journal. And they're imminent, they're, I, the journals I think are imminently looking at their, it's imminent when they're gonna be published in, in journals because they're looking at all the data from the clinical trial results and then it becomes public and there's lots of appendices where you can look at the data. So right now what we're looking at is the data that comes from the data safety monitoring board and the company, which is then being submitted to the FDA. So it will be a little bit of time, hopefully within the next weeks, next couple of weeks where we can actually pour over the data ourselves and see, see where these, how these calculations are made and, and look at all of the, the nuances in the data. Now, when you look at the, when you get your hands on, on some of this data and look at it, what kind of things are you looking for? Are you, is it significant how many people are in the trial or what, what kind of, so the design of the trial, what kind of things are you most interested in looking at to get your confidence up? So definitely the bigger the trial, the more confident we're going to be in the result because the more more, uh, more people that are in it, the, the more statistical confidence you're going to get. I also want to look and see, you know, we're talking about these efficacy numbers, and it's important to remember that the efficacy wasn't about preventing infection. It was about preventing symptomatic infection. So if it's 95%, if it's 95% able to prevent you from getting symptomatic COVID, how much is it effective? How effective is it at preventing you from getting asymptomatic COVID? And how effective is it at decreasing your contagiousness? Those are interesting things I'd want to know about because that, that has to impact, that's going to impact how the virus spreads because we know that the vaccine is going to be a major uh, benefit to keeping people out of the hospital. But we want to know what is it going to do to the spread of the virus in the community because we know the virus, the vaccine isn't going to be available to everybody on day one. It's going to be a process. So there's still going to be needs, uh, a need to kind of be cognizant of the fact that the virus is spreading and, and there may be some precautions that people need to take, especially high-risk individuals. So I want to know, does it provide what's called sterilizing immunity? I want to look at the side effect profile because I'm going to have to counsel patients on what to expect in the days after they get a vaccine. I want to see if the, if the side effect is different between the first and the second dose because this is, these are two-dose vaccines. I want to look at subgroups, diabetics, obese people, high uh, people that are above 70 years of age, the high-risk groups to see, does the vaccine work really well in those groups or are there differences between, between subgroups? All of that's going to be really important to help us understand how effective this vaccine is going to be when we implement it around the world. Now, you mentioned in, when you were describing efficacy, if I understand this correctly, there are different levels of what's measured for efficacy. So you put it in terms of symptomatic spread, asymptomatic spread. So is this right? So I've been reading that 
you can have a vaccine that will prevent complete, you will not be infected if you take it. That's one kind of efficacy. And then another layer is you might get infected, but you're, you won't be sick or not as sick or not severely sick. And so, but you might still be infectious. So is that a helpful way of kind of parsing out what the efficacy you're looking at there? Yes. So the, it's important to remember that the trial endpoints were not prevention of complete infection. It was prevention of symptomatic infection, prevention of severe disease, and they did very well there. But, it, but we don't know if they provide what's called sterilizing immunity. So if you get the measles vaccine, it's very, 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 very unlikely if you're exposed to the measles virus that you even get infected at all. But for example, by contrast, if you get the influenza vaccine, you may still get infected with influenza but the influenza case that you then suffer as a vaccinated person is going to be much less likely to land you in the hospital or kill you, but you can still be contagious to others. So that's another, that's an important point is does this vaccine provide what's called sterilizing immunity? So I want to talk about one of the trials. I, I'm, I'm sorry, I forget which one it was where it, so it was a two dose trial and it, it happened that one of the subgroups that was in the trial, it, I think it was a mistake. They got half the dose and then the full dose for the second uh, ethic. So it, it seemed like it was a, is a slip up, but it turns out that that group, the, the results were much better for that group. So when something like that happens in a study, in a, in a trial like this, does that raise concern in terms of how well the study was done? What, what kind of things do you look at when that's the case? So it's important to remember that was the AstraZeneca vaccine, which is not the one that's going to likely be the first we get in the United States. But yes, it does raise questions about their quality control. It was a fortuitous mistake, and they might have stumbled upon a better dosing strategy with a half dose versus a full dose. But again, you have to think, what is their ability to manufacture this at scale? How did this mistake happen? What kind of controls are in place? Because you have to remember, you're going to be vaccinating the world. We've got an anti-vaccine movement and a lot of people with conspiracy theories about these vaccines. So these types of slip-ups are not good, even though it resulted in a better dosing regimen. And I think there's a lot of questions that AstraZeneca is going to have to answer about why this happened and how they're going to assure that it doesn't happen again. Uh, and, and I think, you know, it's it's good that we got this new data on how to dose this, but I think it, it raises a larger concern about their manufacturing process. And then the other thing that I think is useful from my reading, I want to put it to you and see what your action is. When we look at the, let's say the, the, the data really va validates 94% efficacy as described for one of these, but that's under optimum conditions, right? It's controlled, people get a phone call, they show up to get the booster. But what, what do you think it's going to look like in the real world when people, maybe they're late for their appointment or they forget their booster? Um, what is the difference between the trial results versus the real world results we can expect? I suspect that we're going to see this drop from 94% down maybe into the into the high 80s or, 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 or low, lower 90s. It's hard to know exactly, but it is true that a trial is very different than real world, that there's a lot of things that are controlled in a trial. People don't miss their second dose. People are much more motivated. The people that enter a trial are much more motivated than the average person. All of that plays a role. And we always see a step down from the efficacy results in a, in a phase three clinical trial to what happens in the real world. But I think no matter what, the fact that this was that high it is something that's going to be able to be relied upon as we move forward, that it's not going to drop dramatically if people get both doses. So, so I got the flu vaccine this year. What For this year's uh, version, what was the efficacy for that, just as a baseline for comparison 
with these results. So we don't actually have the efficacy yet because we haven't had very much of a flu season to be able to tell uh, what it will be. But usually in the best of years, it's about 60% efficacious at preventing you from getting symptomatic flu. It's much higher for preventing you from dying from flu. And, and in fact, most people, most pediatric cases of flu deaths are in unvaccinated children. So this year, flu has really been a, a non-issue because all of the social distancing we're doing, uh, coupled with the vaccine and coupled with population immunity we have to related flu, flu virus has made flu basically a, a non-issue. I've only been around maybe two or three patients with flu, which is, which is really extraordinary because we were worried about what would happen. So I, I want to talk a bit about the, before we get to sort of the, 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 um, the rollout of this in terms of people and the challenges. So one of the things we're hearing is that um, the, some of these require really cold conditions in transportation. And that seems like it's not the kind of cold you get with a household fridge or even some of the hospital fridges that we got. So tell us a bit about what challenges you foresee in terms of the rollout. Because um, you know, obviously there's a number, millions and millions of doses are needed, but also the transportation seems like there's a, an issue there. Yeah, so the, especially the the, um, the Pfizer vaccine, which is probably to be the first that's going to be available to Americans, minus 70, minus 80 degrees storage uh, for most of its transport. It can be stored at a refrigerator temperature for a short period of time, but it does denature very quickly. It becomes deactivated. So this is going to be something that requires a lot of logistical support. And there are you know big companies like UPS and the United Postal Service that are really working hard to make freezer farms in parts of Kentucky. They're making uh, a lot. There's a lot of dry ice that's going on. United Airlines is involved. It's really a major process to be able to get this vaccine from the factory into people's arms. And it's not, it's not that simple. Uh, we all, always want to have vaccines that have a very minimal cold chain, uh, but this is the one we've got. And I think it's going to be something that, that's going to be very, very challenging. And I suspect we will see batches of the vaccine that, that end up getting the cold chain gets disrupted and we're worried about their efficacy. And it's really going to be a major problem when you think about the the, the whole world that needs vaccinated because you we have parts of Africa, for example, where electricity for normal refrigeration for vaccines that need just ordinary refrigeration isn't possible. So I do think that there are going to be other vaccines that you might see roll out that don't have this cold this cold requirement, especially for the developing world. Now, with the when we still have real constraints with testing, which you mentioned at the beginning of our conversation. And I, one of the concerns with testing was there's going to be there were shortages or constraints on some of the materials needed, not only the swabs and so on, but just the materials needed for the, for the testing. Do you anticipate similar kind of concerns with what's needed to create some of these vaccines? This is part of what the value of Operation Warp Speed was because they really started to think about this ahead of time and thinking about, for example, medical glass, the vials that you keep the, the, the vaccine in, the, the rubber stoppers, the syringes, the needles, all of that, that supply chain has been pretty well secured by Operation Warp Speed. So I hope that this will all go off without a hitch, but I know that there are going to be unanticipated hiccups when you're trying to do something this at this grand a scale, but this is what the foresight and the planning of Operation Warp Speed was supposed to help with. And, and I think that they're, they've done, a, from my understanding, have done a very good job of this. And I think it's one of the bright spots and really what's been a, a horrible pandemic response. So we're getting a lot of questions. I wanna make sure we, we can bring some of those in. Um, I, I do wanna to get to the questions about um, over and above all these challenges of getting the vaccines out there there's questions about whether people will be willing to, to, to take those vaccines. But let, let me put a few of the questions uh, from uh, viewers to you just now. 
Can you put in sort of in layman's terms, how do these, so these are cutting edge vaccine technologies, the mRNA in particular. So can you just in layman's terms, what exactly is new and different about these and what's your perspective on their implications for the future? So mRNA vaccines are totally something totally new. This technology is something that didn't exist even a decade ago. And many of us in the field, I actually wrote a report, if you Google my name and vaccine platform technologies, you'll see a report that came out just prior to the pandemic about the promise of this technology. So what it basically does is as soon as you've got a pathogen that you're worried about, you figure out which part of that pathogen you need to make a uh, that your immune system reacts to, what protein is it? And you figure out what the genetic code is. And this is something that can do very quickly now. And then you basically take the mRNA, the genetic material, the genetic code for whatever protein that is. So for coronavirus, it's the spike protein. And you basically encase it in a lipid, in a lipid nanoparticle and you just inject that gene. And what happens is that, that, that gene gets taken up by, the vi by your cells and the viral protein gets made by the genetic material in your cells and then your immune system reacts to it. So it's very easy compared to kind of all the, the chemistry and kind of making that kind of stew that we do with other vi vaccines to try and attenuate them, make them weaker. Uh, it's, not, it's, it's something that, that is um, much, much easier to do. And, and it, what, what you can do is then get a vaccine into vaccine trials very, very rapidly and not have to spend a lot of time with all of the main, all of the, the design part, because it, it really accelerates that. And I think this will be something that has dividends that go way beyond COVID-19, because many of us have thought this was going to happen. And now we're at a point where this is something that you see be the, the main way that we may face infectious disease threats in the future, that there may be new viruses that emerge, but we can quickly use this mRNA technology to make a vaccine candidate. So let's talk a bit uh, about the, so you mentioned this vaccine, anti-vaccine movement, and this, you, we've talked in other contexts about vac this term vaccine hesitancy. So I was looking at a, a research done by the Pew Research Organization. They did put out a poll just a couple months ago and they said, uh, one of their findings is, if you go back to May, um, about 72% of Americans said they would get the vaccine if it were available. And then they, they went back to people in, in September, and they said, what, do you, what would you do now? And it's down to 51% would, would do it. And only 20, I think 21% definitely would get it. So th there's people who are kind of still undecided. But that means roughly half of the population, if this poll is right, are not planning to get this vaccine or any of the vaccines once they're available. So what does that mean for the goal of herd immunity? What, what do you think, is there, what, what's known about how many people need to be um, vaccinated or just have had the disease for that to work? So you got to remember that there's two goals with this vaccine. One is to decrease the impact of the pandemic, and that has to do with high-risk individuals. So that's what you're seeing reflected in the priority group announcements that were made a couple of days ago, that in, as part of the first priority, it's going to be nursing home residents. And once you vaccinate that group of po the population, you're going to see less pressure on hospitals because they still make up a significant proportion of who gets hospitalized. So even if we don't get full up, uptake of the, va the vaccine by the general population. The fact that the, if we get a good proportion of the general population of, of the high risk population vaccinated, it, that's gonna be a, a major benefit for hospitals and the major benefit for how we think about this pandemic and what, what you see governments do with regard to social distancing restrictions. I do think that to, to get you know, the full benefit of the vaccine, it will be important to get the general public vaccinated because it's still gonna spread. It's still gonna be landing on certain vulnerable populations that aren't in nursing homes. 
So there's this 20-80 rule that we think about that 20% of the population, 20% of the people infected with the virus or an infectious disease are responsible for 80% of the cases. Think about typhoid Mary. She's a great example of that 20-80 rule. So if we can if we can get to a proportion of the people that are spreading it, we may not necessarily have to get 70%. So if you just look at the population as homogenous, you probably need 70% of them to be vaccinated. But if we can if that doesn't happen, we may reach herd immunity or effective herd immunity lower because we're getting the people that are more likely to lead to spread. But I do think we want to get more people vaccinated because the more people that are vaccinated, the easier it's going to be to go back to some semblance of normal life without people worried about this virus every time they step out their door. So I want to bring in some questions that have been piling up. We'll have to have you back to do more questions. I know you're stretched for time today, but let's let's see if we can get through some of these. Um, just thinking more broadly about the pandemic in other countries, do you have any insight on what accounts for differences in cases in places like France versus Germany? Was one country better at certain aspects of uh, containing it versus the other? So I think it has to do with what type of social mobility was going on. If there was a place where you weren't allowing people to socially interact, it's, it's not a question. If you tell people to stay at home and they do stay at home, cases are going to go down. So it has to do with how, what level of that occurred. And that's the way that many of the European countries approached it. So they have differences in what they allowed, what they permitted. So for example, in Greece, you have to like download this app and you have to show it to people when you go outside to say that I can go do this, I can walk my dog. Whereas in other countries, you don't have to do that. And I think that, that the level of compliance with that and the level of, of how those were rolled out that has to do a lot with the difference in Europe Europe but I I would think that that's not you know that's one way that people can get cases down is to do that but that's probably that's not a sustainable way it's not the right way to do it the right way to do it is sort of what Taiwan did and I think that's the other way to think about it is that that the response of the, that the cases are going to be how quickly you can you can jump on those cases and isolate them and trace their contacts and isolate the and, and quarantine those individuals and test them that's really going to be what influences uh, what what over the long term in a sustainable manner what happens with cases because these European countries were very heavily reliant on shutting everything down and people keeping people in their homes but then they didn't do anything during that time they didn't build any public health infrastructure so everybody's scratching their heads like why are we having these surges now but of course you had surges the virus didn't go anywhere you have to actually use that time if you're going to do that that to give it the best chance of happening, you have to, to work, you have to actually do something in that time and get contact tracers, get testing, but they didn't do that. And we clearly didn't do that in the United States. If you look at Dodger Stadium, the line to get a test, like that, that's 11 months into the pandemic, that it's still taking hours to get a test and that test result comes back five days later and is worthless. Uh, so, so that's not surprising to me that, that you see these, these gradations in cases because many of the places relied heavily on on social distancing uh, requirements, but then didn't do anything else about it. So it, it all do, and people don't comply and then you see cases go back up. So we have a question from someone who is asking, should they, does it make sense for them to wear a mask? They're over 70, 75 or so. Should they wear a mask where it isn't required, for example? Is it good for that? So I know it's hard to give sort of individualized advice like that, but just taking a step back on the issue of masks, it's still surprising, surprising to me how controversial politicized mask wearing has become What's your view of the science on that and what sort of recommendations you give people when you see them in clinic? So the science has completely has completely evolved. It hasn't changed. It's just that we learned so much about this virus and it, and it behaves differently than other coronaviruses that we dealt with in the past, SARS and MERS, namely, meaning that people who have very mild symptoms or, or have no symptoms at all or are pre-symptomatic can spread this. We didn't know that at the beginning of the pandemic. I was one of the people that said that we've never seen that with the coronavirus before, so it doesn't make sense for healthy people to, to, do, to do that. 
But what we've seen clearly over the, uh, the path of this pandemic is the data shows that there are people that are contagious before they have symptoms. So I, I do think that wearing a, wearing a mask, if people do it correctly, and it's not every mask, it's not kind of some kind of bandana that you're wearing, but a proper, a proper mask that's, that's, that's a, a cotton mask that maybe is three, three layers or a hospital, a hospital type mask that you might get access to, that does prevent you from spreading the infection to others. It serves as source control. And we're finding out more and more that, the, that you get infected with less virus. So it does, it does provide a benefit to the wearer as well. And, and there's still some controversy over face shields and how much they work, but I won't go into that. But, but I do think that you, could, you should think about wearing a mask anytime you're around people. Uh, even if they're people that you've been around before, and depending upon your risk tolerance, depending upon the rules in your area. But I think that there are many places where mask wearing isn't very common, for example, in North Dakota. And, and I think uh, it's not required there. It's, you, know, you're not, so you don't have to wear a mask there, but I would surely wear a mask with anything I did in North Dakota based on, on the trajectory of the pandemic there. So let's make this the last question and we can wrap it up. So given where we are with the development of the vaccines and the challenges of the rollout, and where we are in terms of where hospitals, hospitalization, infection rates. What do you think? What do you think the next few months are actually going to look like uh, in between now and when the vaccines become more widely available? It's going to be dark. I think we're going to see deaths increase. We're already setting record numbers of deaths. We have the highest number of people hospitalized since the beginning of this pandemic, over close to 100,000 people. I think you're going to see many people will die between now and when the, when the vaccines are available, and we will see hospitals worried about their capacity on a day-to-day -day basis. I think there are some good things that are coming with the next administration in terms of the, the plan. Many of it, much of what's in that plan codifies what a lot of us have been saying since January of testing, tracing, isolating, home tests. All of that is there, but they're going to to be uh, coming on board with a you know a, a pandemic that's going at 100 150 miles an hour and it's going to be hard to slow it down so i do think uh, before that that we're going to have some dark days before the vaccine is available in in wide quantities so uh, you know one of the exciting things i read is that the united kingdom approved uh, the first uh, sort of mass inoculation uh, what do you expect to happen uh, in the us do you, is it within a matter of weeks or so or uh, so that that approval process and what's your sort of confidence level about that I, I believe the FDA is going to issue an emergency use authorization soon after that. The advisory committee meets uh, in the, in the first, I think it's December eighth for the for the Pfizer vaccine. I think that the, the UK decision does make this even easier for, for the FDA to make this decision. The, the UK actually reviewed this vaccine on a rolling basis. So the data kept coming in as they were going rather than a big stack that gets put on, on the desk of the, the FDA advisor. So that's, it's not surprising that the, that the UK went first with it because they, they, that's how they, they approve in a much, I think, more efficient manner uh, than, than the FDA does when it comes to certain drugs. Great. Well, Amish, I really appreciate you making the time to join us today. I know you have a lot of commitments today, so uh, we'll see you next time. Hope to have you back on the podcast soon. Thanks again. All right. Thank you for having me. So uh, thanks for everyone uh, joining us today. I, I wish we could get more of your questions in, but we'll definitely bring Amish back to uh, give us an update on where things are. And if you have any uh, feedback for us or questions you'd like us to see cover uh, in future uh, podcasts or, or topics, you can always write to us, newideal at einrand.org. Thank you for joining us. My name is Ilan Jirno. We'll see you all next time. You've been listening to New Ideal, a podcast from the Ayn Rand Institute. If you like what you hear, leave us a review, share with a friend, and subscribe to our other podcasts. This podcast was made possible by donors to the Ayn Rand Institute. Help support this podcast by becoming an ARI member. Go to einrand.org forward slash membership.